0: for our practice these four days and save some time for uh, doing the Refuges and Precepts, which is something we do at the beginning of uh, retreats, a way of creating a safe container, and then having a few minutes of silence before we go home. So I think tonight we'll end right at 9 or maybe a few minutes after 9, um, so people can get settled and get here as early as makes sense tomorrow morning. Was reflecting on, you know, how we might use this retreat, and you know, sometimes it's nice to be provocative. And you know, we, you know, in terms of teachings, we need that strength or that being provoked to counter any tendency towards resignation, feeling helpless feeling stuck. So keep that in mind, you know, if some of the images feel a little harsh or a little intense, that it's like medicine. Now that medicine you may not need in this particular moment, but some other people might find it really useful to be provoked a little bit, to be inspired, so that we're not going to fall back, as is our habit, back into being resigned, giving up. The Buddha said once, what is the ripening of suffering? When someone is overcome and the mind is obsessed by suffering, either one sorrows and laments and beating one's breast, one weeps and becomes distraught, or else one undertakes a search externally. Who is there that knows one word, two words, for the cessation of suffering i say that suffering either ripens in confusion or in search and that's really for me it's a powerful motivation to to see that you know that split in the road where i can live my life <clears throat> run into difficulty and go this way where my response to difficulty is it's self-difficult, you know, it's heavy, it's reactive, it's stressful. Or I can meet the difficulty and it can be a cause for an opening: like, well, what do I know about suffering? What, where can I turn? What have I found to be helpful? So that's what we call a reflective approach to life as opposed to uh, habit-based. You know how it is. It's like when we're running into trouble, the only thing the mind seems to want to do is do more of what it's already doing, which, by the way, has led us to the trouble we're in. We just keep doing what we've always done, getting the same results. Keep digging in. As opposed to opening and... Learning to rely on understanding, learning to rely on clear seeing. And the, you know, the real basis of that is humility, knowing that we don't know. It's like we're never going to learn something new about human stress, human suffering, if we think we already know everything there is to know about human stress and suffering. Insight arises in the mind that doesn't know. A mind that knows is limited by what it knows. Another time the Buddha said, this is an interesting translation of this particular passage, when the world is engulfed by a blazing bonfire that rages day and night, how can you be so totally blind as to keep smiling and laughing all the time? Why don't you search for a refuge that you can depend on? And it's You know the interesting thing about our lives is we have really effective distractions. When and I were both sick, quite sick, uh, a couple days ago, each in our own way, and and uh, so Christmas, you know, we didn't have we didn't do anything with the family and Christmas, just our own little two-person family with our cat, and uh, we downloaded some season one episodes of Modern Family and you know and, it's, and all of a sudden things seemed fine just watching some of those episodes and you know it's like there are relatively wholesome and certainly effective distractions in our world that can protect us but they don't really resolve anything you know and we need to understand that about not i'm not talking about the unwholesome distractions but even the relatively wholesome distractions to see that they're limited it, that we, there's really no way outside of opening. You know, we can retreat for a while, we can escape for a while, but we have to open. I was really impressed with a letter that Thich Nhat wrote a few weeks after 9-11 back in 2001. And maybe some of you have heard it. It it kind of made the rounds back then as a a voice of reason, you know, where everyone, because of the fear and because of the constant replaying of those terrible videos, seeing the people falling out of the, the World Trade Center and all the horrific things. And then the media, not knowing any better sort of Really digging into the fear, and then the pundits following along, and and generally, you know, when we get really hurt, we want we want to feel strong, we want to fight back or hit back, and so Thich Nhat Hanh, this wonderful Buddhist monk from Vietnam, has this article "Strike Against Terror." I'll read a few paragraphs. He says, "Terror in the human heart." We must remove this terror from the heart. Destroying the human heart, both physically and psychologically, is what we should avoid. The root of terrorism should be identified so that it can be removed. The root of terrorism is misunderstanding, hatred, and violence. This root cannot be located by the military. Bombs and missiles cannot reach it. Let alone destroy it only with the practice of calming and Looking deeply can our insight reveal and identify this root Only with the practice of deep listening and compassion can it be transformed and removed? darkness cannot Cannot be dissipated with more darkness more, more darkness makes more darkness will make darkness thicker. Only light can dissipate darkness. Violence and hatred cannot be removed with violence and hatred. Rather, this will make violence and hatred grow a thousandfold. A thousand Only understanding and compassion can dissolve violence and hatred. Strike against terror is a misleading expression. What we are striking against is not the real cause or the root of terror. The object of our strike is still human life. We are sowing seeds of violence as we strike. And it's not just in terms of our one nation striking out against other people. This is true every time we react to our experience, to our knee pain, to our experience of boredom, to the irritation we have. Because somebody is moving near us, rustling their shawl, or sneezing, or bothering us in some way. You know, this is our own little version of strike against terror, you know, fighting back. Throwing somebody out of our heart, throwing ourselves out of our heart. We are sowing seeds of violence as we strike. Striking in this way, we will only bring about more hatred and violence into the world. This is exactly what we do not want to do. And then he ends this short talk or letter by saying, we must learn to speak out so that the voice of Buddha can be heard. The Buddha, of course, is this voice of awakening that is possible for all of us, that in a sense is alive already here, this insight so that the voice of the Buddha can be heard in this dangerous and pivotal moment of history. Those of us who have the light should display the light and offer it so that the world will not sink into total darkness. Everyone has the seed of awakening and insight within his or her heart. Let us help each other touch these seeds in ourselves so that everyone will have the courage to speak out. We must ensure that the way we live our daily lives does not create more terrorism in the world. This means with mindful consumption, without discrimination or participating in in injustice, we need a collective awakening to stop this course of self-destruction. I thought it would be nice to start with this tonight, just to put our practice in the context of this Taking care of ourselves and taking care of the whole world. This is exactly what the world needs: for a group of people to come together and to look at the seeds of terrorism in our hearts. You know, this basic root of reactivity. Somehow feeling justified that that closing down, throwing an experience out of our heart, throwing a person out of our heart, leads someplace wholesome. We have to get that in the most subtle ways, sitting silently, walking, sipping tea, having a meal. And all these ordinary, simple experiences that we'll be engaged in, we have to see all the different ways our heart, our mind, seems to be able to justify closing down, shutting down, pushing away, grasping, holding on. It's only when we, it's not enough to sort of catch ourselves having road rage and see that that doesn't work. Because that road rage we have when we're in traffic or somebody cuts us off, that's so far removed from the deep root of fear or aversion or feeling alone, feeling needy. We really have to c- uncover the deeper, more subtle seeds in a more safe container, like we'll have these four days. When we're in a safe place and yet we still feel like we want to strike out against terror, you know, we feel so strongly that we hate ourselves, or we hate the person next to us, or we hate somebody, or feel so strongly that we need something that it's not OK now because I need this. I need to be in this place in order to be happy. I need to be with this person in order to be happy. I need to have a life or a body or a job like this in order to be safe or to be happy. And in all of these different ways, really an infinite number of ways, we we close ourselves off. So I, you probably noticed I passed out a number of handouts, uh, two I want to talk about that you can work on. And you can reflect on it. You might just find one little gem in these. Don't feel like you have to consume both or even all of one. But we'll just go through them. I wanted to introduce the eight precepts. A lot of you know these well already. <coughs> But you might be able to draw a lot of strength and a lot of clarity in the practice, in any one of these practices. As uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, this wonderful Western American monk, (coughs) says at the beginning of the Eight Precepts, it's traditional when people like us enter an intensive period of practice to, move in the direction at least of the eight precepts you might not do them formally but just to value these eight precepts and train in these eight precepts so I want to go through them and we'll do them formally before we go home tonight so the first one you know the technical training is we train and not killing but More generally, we're undertaking the training not to harm living beings, not to harm ourselves and not to harm those around us for this period of practice. And you can just be like, that would be enough. Just to be holding that value as you're sitting, as you're aware of your breath coming in, as you're aware of the thinking mind thinking. Because even in our reaction to our thinking mind, you know, damn it, I'm thinking again. That is called harming. We don't need to reject ourselves because we're thinking. We can understand instead of reject. Oh, thinking is like this. This is what the mind does sometimes it thinks. Can this be okay? So that we're using understanding. It's like our, our one weapon, if you want to use the martial terms. We have one weapon, understanding. All the, all the others aren't allowed because they don't work. If they worked, they'd be allowed. But they don't work. All other strategies involve some kind of closing the heart. The second precept, the second training, undertake the training to refrain from taking what's not given. So it's like we're willing to participate in this world of freely giving and freely receiving. We can give to ourselves, we can receive from ourselves, we can receive from others, we can give to others. And that's the world we're living in. Instead of the dog-eat-dog, competitive, manipulative, we're leaving that behind for this period of training. So just keep that in mind, like how that might arise in different ways. Someone might leave. I noticed Jenny Ross came by earlier and left some treats for us to put out at different times during the retreat. And there may be, you know, a little bowl of this or that. And you might just notice that like, it's freely given. But how much of it is freely given? Is all that freely given to you, or just one? Or and it's not like black and white. We may not know. You know, it's just a, an experiment. Like, what is the attitude? Is it that competitive? Like, what can I take? What can I get away? From? What would we do if a lot of people were watching? Versus, what would we do if we we're in the room alone and no one's watching? So these are just things to kind of help us see the mind. See the heart. See what's moving. I undertake the precept, the training to refrain from sexual activity. This is a general uh, practice we do during retreat, intensive practice periods. Now, Some of you, of course, are involved in committed relationships. And where, of course, it's totally appropriate to be involved in intimate physical relations. But during the course of the retreat, you might, if it feels appropriate, you might just want to refrain from sexual activity. Doesn't mean you can't touch your partner, but it just means that uh, we're not going to, because it's such a powerful um, activity for the mind, we're just going to keep things simple. And then it gives us an opportunity to look at uh, some of the compulsions and fears and desires around sexual activity. So I encourage that. And then for those of us, for those of you who aren't in committed relationships, you know, it's just even in terms of uh, fantasy and flirting, even very subtle flirting. You know, like just I'm just not going to go there during the retreat. We don't. We can be aware. You know, the mind becomes sensitive. We know when we're doing that. So I'm just not going to do that. And if you catch your mind doing that, you just cease. And then the mind still may do it. You don't make it an act of violence, that cessation. It's just that reminder, like, I don't need to do that now. We're going to keep the container really simple for each other. And that's the one of the reasons we don't talk, is that it's like that freedom of not having to be a social being, not having to present ourselves to each other to the last hour when we do our closing circle. you know, And it's such a relief not to have to go there. The fourth is, I undertake the training to refrain from incorrect speech. It's translated here, or false speech. And the Buddha generally talks about that in terms of not lying, not using speech as a weapon, not using harsh speech, harsh words, or idle speech. Now, of course, it would be easy for us because while on retreat, we won't be speaking. When you go home, your your speech will be limited. Just work it out with your partners or your family, or your friends that you live with. But you're not going to be engaged in a lot of talking. You know, it doesn't mean you can't say hi to your friend or your whoever you live with, but you don't need to get into it. Just let them know that this is just part of the training, so it doesn't seem weird to them. They know what's up. And then it's pretty easy, but internally, you know, we still have that inner dialogue going on. And then we can just notice, are we using harsh speech? Are we speaking the truth when we have that inner dialogue going on? Is it idle? <laughs> you know, just sort of filling up space, telling ourselves stories. So well, maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe we can train in letting that go. I undertake the precept, the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind with alcohol or drugs. Too much caffeine, or anything that's intoxicating—basically, whatever that might be—you know, even intoxicating media. You know, that's one of the reasons we don't consume media because it's so intoxicating. It affects us like a drug does. So we give it up for these four days. Then this, the next three are really more about renunciation. The six is undertaking the precept generally, like if you went to a monastery, you wouldn't eat past noon. Now, because we're all on the rhythm that most of us lay people have of having a meal in the evening, we're not going to do it that way. Or some of us might, but most of us won't. But you can just take up the training to use food as medicine, like you're taking the food to take care of your body so you feel comfortable in the body, the body stays healthy, you have the strength to do what you need to do, but not as entertainment. So you know, they're probably gonna be delicious meals and you might fix yourself nice lunches. But just keep in mind like see your food as medicine. It doesn't mean it can't be delicious, but you don't want to use it as entertainment, like delighting the mind, escaping into the delight. So if it's really pleasant tasting, don't be confused by the pleasantness, like be really sensitive to the pleasantness. You don't want to hold back or be afraid of the pleasantness. But when that energy of pleasantness is there, not to get lost in it. And you know you're lost in it when you're rushing. You know, like you don't even want to finish the first bite before you get to the second bite. So it's just the opposite. Generally, when we're lost in the pleasantness, we're not really sensitive to it. So actually be sensitive to the pleasantness. That's the way not to be lost in it. The seventh, undertaking the training to refrain, <laughs> the traditional recitation is from dancing, singing, music, going to see entertainments, wearing garlands, using perfumes, and beautifying the body with cosmetics. But I like, when I say this to myself, you know, the way I translate this in my mind is, I undertake the training to refrain from indulging in entertainments and to refrain from indulging in adornments and in possessions. So all my possessions, whatever they might be, I'm not going to indulge in them. I'm going to use them functionally to help support this life so I can practice effectively. And the same with any entertainments or things we might call entertainments. If it's not functionally helping me practice, being a good person, I'm going to abstain from it for the period of this training. So that's just an encouragement. And then the last, I undertake the training. To refrain from lying in a high or luxurious sleeping place. Now I translate this as I undertake the training to refrain from indulging in sleep. Sleep is also medicine. It's something that's functional. It helps the body feel good, feel, and the mind be alert. So we use it, and just not too much, and not too little. We don't get enough sleep, and it just depends on where you're at in your life and how much sleep you need. So. There's nobody else to tell us. But you'll know if you're sleeping. I mean, one of the telltale signs is your mind is working really hard to think of creative dreams so you don't have to get up. But if you see you don't need sleep, you should get up and start practicing. And you can come to the center early or you can fix yourself breakfast and sit at home and then get in the car and get here for the 8 o'clock sit. So you can just find... You know a rhythm that works well you get home and you're still really alert don't go to bed you know get all ready for bed and then sit or do some walking practice or some mindful stretching and then go to bed when you feel when you actually feel sleepy. so you can use any of these eight precepts that just whatever speaking to you and and just be willing to recall it and then it's like a reflection. You can bring it up at any time, in the middle of a sit, in the middle of a walking, just like it might illuminate your practice in a given moment. And same with the 10 paramis, which is the other handout that I have. And there's two versions, one in the front side, one on the back side. Um, so the front side I'm calling where there are these 10 quotes with each of the 10 paramis. These are the beautiful qualities of mind. And again, not that you're going to work with more than one. You might just work with one of these qualities as a teacher for you, that just speaks to you, whether it's generosity or morality or enunciation or wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, loving kindness, equanimity. On the back side, Steve Armstrong talks about each of these in terms of letting go. On the front side, Steve and Kamala have collected quotes that just help illuminate these 10 beautiful qualities of the heart. So from time to time, you can go through these two sheets, just draw on them. The third sheet is a, uh, just some practice instructions from Sayadu Utejaniya. So you have, besides the talks in the evenings and the small group discussions, you have these three sheets you could just draw on in a way that works for you. Just keep them nearby. When you need a little inspiration, you could just randomly look through the sheet, draw on something, or go back to something that you've decided is really a good theme for you for this practice period. But all of this, I thought, fit nicely into the simple teaching that the Buddha gave. This is something many of you have heard before, where the Buddha says that the practice comes down to cultivate or <coughs> abandoning what's unskillful, cultivating what's skillful, and purifying the heart. And you can think of the eight precepts or different ways of abandoning what's unskillful. So there is a place. We don't want to be afraid of that power, that wholesome power of restraint, of letting go, of putting down putting down the burden, ceasing something that we know isn't helpful. Everybody needs to learn this, right? This is what we get a lot from our parents. Don't do that. You know, it's a—it's not an instruction we like to receive from others. And it isn't an instruction we like to give ourselves. You know, we'd much rather give ourselves a positive yes but that's the second step. The first step is knowing how to say no. There's a famous book, How to Forget uh, Getting to Know. Is that the title of it? Yeah, to I forget anyway, but in that book, whatever the title is, the author talks about that you, sometimes you need a thousand skillful no's to get to one positive yes. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. We have to master the skill of saying no. And <clears throat> ideally, we've internalized it, so we're not reliant on our parents and our teachers and our partners to tell us, stop that. <laughs> you know, Because we know for ourselves what is heavy, what's hot, what needs to be put down. And we're putting it down. And it doesn't matter how many times we pick it up, because we're willing to put it down. So part of what we'll be practicing during the retreat is watering all of our skillful habits of ceasing, putting down what needs to be put down. Honey, I don't need to do that now. I can put that down. This isn't the time for that. I can put that down. I don't care if I pick it up in another two seconds. Right now, I'm just going to put this down, because I know better. I know I don't need to do that. And then the other thing we can train is is saying yes. And that's where the ten paramis will come in. So when we practice ceasing, when we practice restraining, we begin to feel the happiness of restraint. There's a real happiness. of It's like a harmony, like... We've protected ourselves from unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome actions. But when we cultivate positive, what's good, like the ten paramis, we start to feel that a mind that's healed. The, the beautiful qualities that we cultivate, it allows the heart to come together. We call that samadhi, that unification of the heart. But it's really a blossoming, a steadiness, a firmness like a mountain of confidence. That that solidity, that steadiness is like a mountain of confidence, where you have confidence in the inherent goodness of the heart. We don't have a negative attitude because we're seeing very clearly, because of this cultivation of what's good, that this heart can be trusted. There's something good here. I'm not reliant on other people to be good like my teacher or my teachers because I see the seeds of goodness in my own heart and it's so inspiring and it really, the energy comes, joy comes, like I want to practice because I see something really beautiful afoot. I might not be there yet, you know, I'm I'm still a beginner, but I see what's getting set in motion and it's inspiring. So we have that bliss of harmony by just keeping ourselves out of trouble through the power of restraint. And then we start having that happiness, that uh, enlivened joy or rapture when we start to see uh, what's the potential of the heart, we could say. That the capacity of this heart to really be established in love, a universal love or compassion, really established in peace or calm. Steadiness. I can really see that potential. And then the last part of that teaching of the Buddha, you know, refraining from what's unskillful, cultivating what's skillful, and purifying the heart. This last piece of purifying the heart, it's really about purifying our understanding. It's the last purification. So. It's all about burning away what's extra. We're burning away the habits of actions that are unskillful. We're burning away whatever is keeping the beautiful qualities of mind, heart, from shining through. And then we're burning away wrong view, the wrong understanding. It isn't even so much we have to develop right understanding, as we have to put down wrong understanding. We have to put down self-centered notions. We have to go beyond them. And that's the purification of view. That's purifying the mind. It's learning how to go beyond wrong view. So that's that's a way to hold all of the teachings we'll go through this weekend or this uh, next four days. We're purifying our actions. Just coming to this retreat every day, it's a powerful purification of our action because there's so much we're not doing just coming here, just being here during the day. We're purifying our mind, just being reminded of calm, being reminded of love, coming back to these beautiful qualities, believing in them, seeing them in other people. Even though we're not talking, you just see somebody moving peacefully. You see somebody who seems to be radiating a real joy, inner joy, a real generosity of heart. We just start picking it up within and outside of ourselves. There are beautiful qualities in this heart that are just waiting to be set free. And then through the talks and through our own reflections, we'll begin to see how self-view, self-centered notions are just thoughts. And we don't need to get confused by our... There's no way I can get rid of that defensive, complaining, neurotic voice. But I absolutely can be unconfused by it. It may be there playing itself out, but I don't have to take it personally. I don't have to be confused by the neurotic habits of the mind. So the purification of view isn't like eradicating all of our cultural conditioning in a four-day retreat. But it's learning to have space around it. It's just thought. It's just habits of mind expressing themselves in the space of awareness. It's just the free movement of nature. Thoughts are moving like nature. In the same way wind moves, moves the leaves of a tree, you know, thoughts move through the mind. We don't need to be pushed around by those thoughts. Just let them be what they are. Neurotic thoughts, self-centered thoughts. So it's 9 o'clock. I think maybe the best thing is tomorrow's chanting instead of doing the four quarters chant. At 8 o'clock when we come together, we'll do the three refuges and five precepts together. so let's just take it's uh, nine o'clock. So we'll just take five minutes and end the evening with some silence. So do what you can to be comfortable. and at the beginning of a retreat. It's a really beautiful thing to bring to mind all of our wise spiritual ancestors, all the women, all the men, all those beings who have done their practice and have created this beautiful wisdom stream, wisdom deep river that we're part of feeling surrounded by beneficent loving beings who have our best interests at heart and the best interests of all beings at heart and we can join in this beautiful field of compassion dedicating our work or practice here together this, these four days not only for the transformation of our heart the awakening of the heart but for the awakening and transformation of the whole world may we all without exception realize real peace and freedom from suffering May we, together, awaken, releasing all confusion, all tightness, all ideas of separation. May we be happy. Wishing everyone a good night. So we'll see some of you back maybe at 6, but everybody back at 8 o'clock. If you have any questions, you can come up and see me. And feel free to leave things on your cushion um, between the evenings, because uh, nothing, obviously, will be happening. So you can leave things there and maybe mark your cushion in some way so that people will know it's your cushion.